Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, an asset management special. Today, we're diving into a part of the industry that's not often highlighted, but one I know many of you either work in or are keen to learn about. We're going to recap what an asset manager is, uh, who it's for, and how it's changing. And if you're interested in the subject of investments and want to know more, uh, we did a wealth special in episode 167. Uh, We're also going to cover this subject in episode 171, which is time traveling into the future. And we covered a beginner's uh, version of this in episode 135. So will 2018 be a year of massive change for asset managers and the whole market? To help us manage this, we have some fantastic guests. Of course, we have 11FS's own Pete Townsend. Pete, how are you, sir? Awesome. Thanks, Simon. And we have the returning Chris Mills, who's now managing partner at Fimatics. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming back. And last, but by no means least, we have Zainab Merrick-Smith, the Head of Alternative Investments and Advisory at EY. Zainab, how are you? I'm very well. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being with us. Alrighty, so Pete, let's start us off. Um, the reason we're part of this, the investors. How are the evolving demands of different types of customers of asset managers changing their old ideals on running an asset management business? So, what do investors want these days? Is, is it changing? Very basic thing that they want is they want someone to help them preserve and grow their wealth. And who? So this is this could be URI, this could be a big company, this could be a charity. They just want somebody. Hey, we've got this amount of cash or these assets, and we want somebody to preserve and help grow them. Exactly, exactly. You've got the institutional market for investors. You've got the wholesale market, and you've got the retail market. And the way it works is sixty percent institutional. 30% wholesale, about 10% retail, and they have different needs, different demands, different responses to whatever you're doing on the tech side. So Chris, um, what's changing in that world? I saw a great article on BBC News recently about millennials, these these often uh, this thrown around term, uh, uh, are going to secure an inheritance boom, but not until they're very old. So is this, is this something that if we're preserving wealth, if we're hand, uh, transitioning wealth through generations, we should be thinking about? Absolutely. I think it's fair to say that 90 odd percent of the current wealth in the market is held by let's call it the gray pound you know over 60s 70s etc and they're not going to live forever and at some stage you're going to get to a point where they're going to want to pass on those assets we all know the delightful millennials are obviously all characterized by one or two things they differ completely as do their elders there's a big question how that manages how do how do you hand over that wealth across generations Zane, have any thoughts on that? Um, look, we, we work within our organisation with a number of uh, millennials, and I think one of the things that I notice is how much more flexible and fluid they are in their approach to life and their expectations about the immediacy of things. And I think that translates also into their understanding and approach to wealth and wealth management. So a lot of the time they're looking at goal-orientated um, you know, accumulation effectively. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic and that's an interesting implication then for the asset managers who are having or the wealth managers who are having to respond mm-hmm. to that so the, so the wealth managers are not always the same people as the asset managers right so the wealth manager could be your bank it could be somebody set up to do that or it could just be uh, a platform like a, a hargreaves lansdowne yeah yeah the asset manager like joe parkin said from blackrock on the other podcast the part one of the series was uh, it's the engine right? It's the engine of what is driving the investment returns and your preservation and growth of wealth. The wealth manager sits in front of that or platform sits in front of that to be able to direct their client's money um, into the different mix and, and baskets of assets. Um, I, what I'm really interested in on the millennial side is 
well, what's actually going to happen, right? When they do have a big chunk of money that's handed over to them, will that just go into their current account? Um, who's going to help them invest that? Where is that going to go and how are they going to do it? So if you're a wealth manager and you have a relationship with this one individual uh, at the moment who, you know, the average age across the wealth industry is what, 67, 68, something like that. It's, yeah. it's the gray mm-hmm. uh, pound, as you say, mm-hmm. and they don't have a relationship with the rest of the family. So then when the rest of the family does inherit that, that wealth, where, where does that wealth go? What I find interesting is how, how that relationship is being developed. So in the past, it's through you know, various media, and it might be through paper, faxes, letters. And millennials clearly are interacting in a completely different way. So, so often, the interaction with the grey pound through the wealth manager has been some letter that's stuck in an attic somewhere. Now, now resurrecting that, in a sense, to, to maintain that relationship, some wealth managers have managed that. Hargreaves Lansdowne has been particularly good at connecting family members together mm. in a very in a blend of digital stroke old media. So and others are are working out that it's not just about everything on a smartphone. You need to manage that transition. It's a blend of new and old technologies. I like that. Not not everything's on a smartphone. Digital isn't just what you do on a smartphone, and and relationship isn't just what you do on a smartphone. It's not what's inside the app. It's knowing about the wider family circumstances, it's understanding the customer's jobs to be done. So what are the jobs to be done of a uh, person who's potentially going to inherit wealth? What, what do they need to learn? What do they need to know about? Zeneva, do you, do you, have you had any experience with the idea of that somebody who uh, may be about to inherit wealth is also inheriting responsibility, perhaps? It's, it's a tough one because, um, you know, I suppose you could argue they're saving and they're saving and, and the value of that pound that they're saving is declining so what are they saving for Uh, and so some of the consumption behaviors are reflective of that Uh, more immediacy uh, more short-termist potentially Uh, it's interesting that you know it seems to be driving us toward a society where actually we are isolating ourselves uh, not only in terms of the social media usage that we have but also in the way that we live our lives so if you think about single occupancy in terms of housing you know, equally, we're seeing that reflected from the millennials in terms of <clears throat> the kind of accommodation that they're looking for, and frankly, that they can afford. So, so all of that seems to be driving toward one direction, which is this sort of short-term, immediate, <clears throat> uh, uh, quite dislocated environment into which these millennials are growing. Interesting. So they, those are the pressures on them. So they, they are finding themselves with this need, more immediate type of response in, in how they're living their daily lives. The, the pressure has been squeezed. They may have this future inheritance, but no relationship with the organization that's, that's managing that wealth. Um, and so suddenly they've got an education gap. They've got to learn about all of this sort of stuff. But then also they've got to think longer term. So, so how can you help somebody do something like that? Well, they generally, you know, what I would tend to think is that you're doing what your parents do, right? And how are your parents saving? How are your parents investing, right? And if they are using Hargraves Lansdowne and working with them to handle their investments, then, you know, well, yeah, we'll go back to Hargraves Lansdowne. Um, And all of a sudden, that transfer of of whatever the amount of money is now in your responsibility. And are you self-directing that? Do you have an independent financial advisor that's helping you? But a decision needs to be made on what to do with that money, right? Yeah, and, and I think increasingly the smarter wealth managers are talking the language of their chosen client base. Interesting. So they're not they're not using language such as buy this fund, this OIC, this USITS. These are all ridiculous acronyms that mean nothing beyond the fund industry. And actually what they're starting to look at is sort of outcome-orientated solutions. By that I mean 
So for the so for the retirement generation, it'll be how do I manage an income stream until I die, bluntly. So if you do this, this is how much income you might have when you're 65. The hard thing is, is that very few people can foresee and project themselves 25, 35, 45, 85 years into the future to say, if I save up the loose change from all of my coffees, that could mean the difference from living in a two-bedroomed house in you know in Essex to living in the Bahamas it's a ridiculous concept but it but the delights as Einstein said of compound interest it can happen so I'm, I've um so Jason actually when we were on a train to um, Heathrow a couple of weeks ago in fact before Christmas we were going to the slush conference for a thing we did with, with a client and uh, he discovered this group in uh in Reddit called uh, financial independence retire early or fire yeah. and and, and it, Jason, God bless him, uh, has has got an ability to spot trends before they're coming. And it, what this group does is is they talk about their number. What is the number they need in order to have a stable income, and how quickly can they get to that number? So if I need thirty five thousand dollars per year over twenty five years, I can figure out pretty quickly what yeah. my number is. And w- then it becomes about hacking the amount of income you've got on a day to day basis to f- have the financial independence to retire early, and then maybe do what you want with your life. Maybe Maybe you don't want to be working in the job you've got. Maybe you want to be gardening, painting, whatever else it is, and have the freedom to follow your passion. And it, it almost feels like uh, the CrossFit type of movement or the health movement or the juicing movement is that you get these movements in the millennial generation. You know, uh, Seth Godin called it tribes, yeah. that we all agglomerate around a set of ideas. Do, do, do we need to, as you're saying, change the language of distribution? It's not just about a pretty screen. It's about how I communicate. Yeah, I think you do. And a lot of the discussions that we're having these days are around asset managers can't just push products out to the market anymore. They can. There's going to be a part of the market that will still buy that. Um, But things are changing. Things are moving. And that it will be about providing access points to be able to invest. So how how does an asset manager support a wealth manager in doing that? Because surely you can't have uh, like a a car that really meets my needs, but with an engine that doesn't. Like the two have to be in harmony. So, So what do they need to be thinking about to get there? Well, the asset managers have the working relationships with wealth management outposts, right? And they have the agreements in place to say that if you wealth managers sell these funds to X number of individuals, X number of investors, um, then this is your cut of the fee or this is your fee that goes on top. Um, And it is another it's another part of the channel that before you get to the end investor. But actually, if we if I look at what we've seen in the market over the last 12, 18 months, it's been very much driven by that user experience that we touched on earlier coming from the wealth management side, so the distribution side. But actually the manufacturing and the asset managers, I'd say, are a little bit behind the curve. And they are almost now having to respond to that in terms of, you know, you said yourself there with regards to, is it just a pretty app or is it just a pretty user interface? No, actually what's most important is the underlying data Mm. to be able to then provide the content to make some clever decisions off the back of that. So there's this really interesting symbiotic relationship between the asset manager and the wealth manager. The wealth manager has a customer who needs a better experience, but the wealth manager needs better data um, and access to that data to be able to do that. And it's the asset manager that has to provide that. And the asset manager 
has probably had a, a pretty good decade and, and hasn't really felt the need to change, but now their customer feels the need to change, perhaps they do too. I mean, some of you may have seen this article in the FT uh, where the chief of Leg Mason warned of a disruptive period for uh, asset managers. So uh, Joseph Sullivan says the industry has become used to unsustainable margins. Uh, why do we think they're unsustainable? And, and is it just the, the customer demand that's changing or are there other pressures on asset managers as well? I think the simple answer is the business model that's being created for asset managers is getting too costly to maintain. Most asset managers have built or evolved this over time in in a, in a incremental way, and therefore got got frankly to become much more um, unwieldy in providing a cost efficient and effective solution. And you've had a period of you know challenging times in terms of performance out of certain asset classes. And if you think about uh, you know long term where assets are going, we're seeing this increased focus around alternatives. Um, you know, c- clearly my, my area of interest. But the reason for that is because investors are searching for yield and they're just not finding it from perhaps the more traditional uh, areas of investment that have existed previously. And, and I think that gives you your answer a little bit between the difference between asset managers and wealth as well, because asset managers, y- when you talk to the market, it is about performance. In the main, that is the, the one KPI, the one criteria by which they're, man- they're judged, when actually I think increasingly it should be on fit of solution to their end client base. Yeah, and, and while MIFID is, is introducing, MIFID 2 is introducing a lot of that and saying, is your product suitable for the investors that you're selling it to? So that you've got that data engine that now has to also come with suitability to that end customer. So the symbiotic relationship becomes more and more important because I can produce it, but have I given you the data for you to decide if it's suitable or not, or you know, what, and how available is that data? Because if I'm going to build a new experience for this customer, I have to learn about them and I have to have the data available to me to be able to make that decision, not, hey, I'll show you what the product is after you've bought it and I'll see if I've even got it after you've decided you want to buy it, sort of. Yeah. Where you find yourself today. Yeah, and it, it's not easy because a lot of the data that's coming out of the asset management shops is what you would call through analog channels, where it's coming out in flat files, it's coming out in Excel, it's coming out in a number of different ways that the wealth managers are then absorbing, uploading to their platforms, and then presenting to their clients through a very nice front end. Um, on the other side, you have coming back from the wealth managers, when you do get the money in from the investors, that needs to be directed towards the asset managers. That's going out through Swift channels, that's going out through some subscription documents with fax machines and a number of other ways. Um, so the symbiotic relationship that's becoming more and more important is actually this very thin piece of string um, based on old technology when actually we need to think about how do we how do we grow that relationship if it's going to become so important where both sides of it, whether you've got the, the wealth managers really needing to differentiate and you've got the asset managers facing fee pressure, regulation pressure from MIFID too. And I saw um, Hargreaves, Lansdowne and uh, Best Investor actually ditching some funds because some of them weren't able to uh, keep yeah. up with MIFID too. Yeah. So there's this little thing called PRIPs are packaged retail insurance products, um, and you need a whole boatload new of um, data that is presented to customers, to investors, so they can make their investment decision. Um, And if a fund decides that they're not going to uh, offer all that information, then they're outside of the compliance. And Hargraves Lansdowne said, I think for 100 some odd unit trusts uh, in the UK that are not USITs, which are exempt from PRIPs, um, and then over a thousand ETFs, I think, that came from the US that, well, if they're not compliant with PRIPs, then they're they're not going to be on their platform. 
Um, so those go. And the U.S. ones probably won't come back because the U.S. ETFs won't all of a sudden pony up and say we're going to be PRIPS compliant. So we've talked about the relationship between kind of the, uh, the distribution side on wealth and, I guess, some of the front office stuff for an asset manager. But let's define the front office a little bit more. Uh, can an asset manager or can an organization in the investment space really differentiate on front office um, where, the, where we're moving, if we've got more transparency, if we're getting more commoditized because of the move to passives? Like, um, can you differentiate here anymore or is it just par for the course now it's all the same because everybody's buying passes? No, absolutely, you can differentiate. I think it, it, it's a. You're right. There's a. A lot of the press has been around the move to passives. It's still the vast majority of the market is on on an active basis. Um, and frankly, as I said before, from an asset management perspective, it's about providing the right investment vehicles for your client base. That's where you can differentiate. That's where you can focus on where you can identify value or untapped value in the market. Hence, as Zainab was saying earlier about the move to alternatives. If you're an expert in alternatives, that's where the larger returns are and therefore the larger performance gains. Who wouldn't want to offer their clients the best return on their investment? And I don't think this is necessarily anything new. I mean, look, any, anywhere you've got a marketplace where that brings buyers and sellers together, you're going to have people that are trying to identify untapped, as Chris says, market opportunity to be able to seize upon it and, and do the best for yourself and all your underlying investors. So, you know, I, I think we will continue to see a variety, a mix. And as long as there are portfolio managers and and people who have a view, a philosophy about how to uh, untap that market opportunity, I think we'll continue to see interesting developments and dynamic and innovative strategies in the marketplace. So Pete, talk to me about portfolio and risk management. So in the front office, that's what I'm doing to a certain degree, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. So portfolio management is assembling a basket of assets uh, based upon a strategy and it's it's risk return. What is your appetite for risk? Um, and historically, what you've seen is the active asset managers. You had those that would invest across balanced strategies, equities, fixed income, so on and so forth. And those were traditional strategies. And then you had the alternatives, which Zainip um, is an expert at, and that that is more on the hedge fund side of things. So um, where you take on more risk. And what- Give me an example of some of these alternatives. Uh, so uh, Bridgewater is one of the, the largest hedge funds in the world. Um, you've got Lansdowne Partners here uh, in the UK that is one of the but big ones. But what are ones. the assets that they buy? The assets, they, they would not only make bets on the long side of the market that asset prices would go up and the securities in which they invest would go up, but that also you can go short, which is that those security prices go down. You take a bet that, um, um, something will go through a period of bad performance, a sector, a specific stock, um, and you you go short, which is a, a negative bet against it. Um, that would be the very basic and probably about 50 to 60% of the alternatives market. Um, and then you have uh, a, an entire macroeconomic sleeve that go, would go on top of that, um, where you're looking at the interplay across different asset classes and, and playing those off each other. With the market recently being so one directional and the VIX having kind of almost the market having almost no volatility in it, uh, is going short still an option or are we are we in the middle of a bubble here and, and how's that affecting uh, the asset managers? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of, one of the things I saw probably 20 years ago when I left, uh, when I left Fidelity was that I saw a bunch of asset managers 
managers from Fidelity, portfolio managers that wanted to go short, that couldn't when they were at Fidelity, left and go went to work for hedge funds, right? Um, and that is, there, there's always going to be an area of quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis where you find losers in any market, right? That you would that you would short on, but hedge funds are, you know, it's not just about the ability to go short. It's about um, looking at a specific asset class or strategy that you have some really good expertise in and saying, I am going to put on a lot of risk here. So I'm going to borrow some money from a type of uh, provider called a prime broker, which is an investment bank. um, And I am going to leverage my investment so that um, I am going to take on more risk and perhaps bring on more return. So that's on the long side of things as well. Interesting thoughts. So moving away from the front office, middle and back office, um, what, are the, what are they doing by comparison? So they're not just picking the assets and the, the, I guess there's, there's a whole fulfillment side to what they've got to do and making sure everything happens. But what are those things? Yeah, I mean, the middle and back office, um, you know, it's on uh, the, the post trade process. So after the portfolio manager, the traders execute trades in the market, there's a whole boatload of activities that need to take place to make sure what was intended to happen does actually happen. It needs to be confirmed. It needs to be reconciled with a number of different parties. There's duplicate record keeping. Um, some of that is done within the asset manager, depending upon their strategy. Some of that is done by third parties. So same as the front and middle uh, front office question, has it been looked at historically as a cost center? Um, and can it be an area to differentiate? And, and, and what might that look like, Chris? The back office has typically been that area of accounting and a measure of value and ownership. And the middle office facetiously has been the area that's translated between the front and the back. Mm. Um, however, o- often it's been around performance analytics. It's been about risk analytics. So you've, you've, you've found a whole service industry has been born over years about providing accounting services, about increasingly providing you know, risk and performance analytics, and then trading as well. So gradually you're having a, a, you know, an outsourced um, service operation for asset managers. And I think, you know, in terms of differentiation, for those service providers, yes, you can differentiate. But for the asset managers who are utilizing those services, increasingly they'll see all of those as a cost center, as a commodity. So if they're commodities, um, how have they been commoditized? Are we still using the same technology we have been for 20, 30 years? Are we looking at high cost bases or is, or is this stuff getting more efficient? In it? Uh, maybe just backtracking a little bit. I mean, I'd agree that... Um you know, to some extent, they are they are a cost center. But I think it's important to note that when an investor or not, you know, somebody who's allocating their money to these managers, performance is key. We we recognise that performance, performance, performance. But I, I think the other thing to bear in mind is that they are also looking for a long term strategic partner. They're looking for somebody that they can trust. They're looking for operational robustness into the organisation that they're placing those assets with. So whilst absolutely, you know, uh, that front office piece is fundamental, I think let's not completely dismiss the middle and back office and the value and the importance that that has in actually giving that confidence to the underlying investors about where their assets are being held. So this comes back to the symbiotic relationship with the wealth manager is unless I've got that confidence that comes from the middle and back office part of the uh, asset manager, then I really can't offer a a service to to the end customer and, and to the investor in the way that I'd like. You're, you're pro- an investor of any type is providing a, a set of money in the simplest sense and looking for some kind of return over a period. And it could be in a set of, a set of alternatives which increasingly are able to offer 
real estate or private equity or, or you know, houses, people, things that people know and love, but for direct investment and technology is enabling that. But at the end of the day, you've got to be able to safeguard that valuation of those assets, that they are accurately maintained and that the investor does end up with a title to those assets. Yeah. That's that yeah. that value chain that has to be trusted. So is that, that opaque today? Is Because is, you, you, you suggest that you've got to make sure they end up with ownership of that asset. Surely that's implied in that they've tried to buy it. It is implied. And I would say there are potentially many assumptions along that path to date. And I would argue that there are probably too many participants trying to take and add value in that. I think technology increasingly is offering a shortening of that traditional linear chain and potentially even making it much more of a platform. Interesting. So we, we have a, who are the, some of these third parties that are, that are out there, and um, can can you just walk me through some of the yeah. key names? I mean, I'm, the the top five would be State Street Bank, BNY Mellon, JP Morgan, City. So we're talking about BNP Paribas custodians, global custodians, and, and administrators. Of- exactly, and they they would also have a fund administration arm. They'd have some middle office services that they provide, perhaps in performance and risk. I was talking to a big. Uh, pension advisor yesterday who was saying that where they really value what their global custodian and administrator do is on the regulatory reporting side because they have scale at that. They have people that go ahead of the curve of the regulatory changes that are coming down the path and inform them of that and say, this is how we're going to help you do that. So, so there's a pension fund. I, I can rely on some of these service providers to do some of the sc- scary thing happens uh, in the market. Well, scary in, in air quotes. Mifid 2 comes along and me as pension fund now suddenly has to do a whole bunch of reporting but actually, well, no, because I've got a service provider here as a custodian who can who can manage some of that for me. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the big, one of the big things they, when when I speak with clients about this, they they say, well, how what is an asset manager looking to do? Right? They're they're trying to do three things. They're trying to raise money. They're trying to perform with the money they raise, but then trying to keep costs down. Their third-party service provider can't really do much on the performance side unless they're doing some FX hedging for them, which is a long story. Um, they can't really help them do too much on raising money except for services in local markets. Um, on the cost side, they can help them keep costs down. You don't want costs to go too low, though, because the old adage is pay peanuts, get monkeys, right? Um, so what they can do is have, as Zainab is saying, that strong working relationship, that partnership, so that when surprises are coming down the pipe, what the last thing you want to do as a third-party provider is to help an investor to leave the fund because you haven't provided them with a good level of service on behalf of the fund. So you've got to deliver them value and an element of service. That's very, very true. All right, so um, when we come back from our break, we're going to get into some of the trends that are changing uh, in, in the asset and wealth space because I think we've done a good overview as to the pressures that, that are there and, and some of the functions and what they do. Um, but for now, uh, let's thank our sponsors. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank, and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Welcome back, listeners. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We are venture builders for the digital age. We help organizations understand the future and execute change, and we're building propositions for 
clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11fs.com or you can connect on Twitter at 11fs team or just drop us an email at hello at 11fs.com. The 11 media team who produce this podcast also produce Connection Interrupted, a weekly show about technology and how technology is changing lives and the unique personal journeys that have led to. And where they also produce Blockchain Insider, a weekly rundown of all the things happening in blockchain and DLT with news, views, and world-class interviews. Both of these shows are available on iTunes now, and we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review. Okay, on with the show. And I am joined, of course, by Pete, Chris, and Zinnett. Hope you enjoyed the break. Feeling good, feeling refreshed, feeling ready to go. I can see Pete at the starting blocks. I can see him stretching. I can feel him going. Uh, All right, so um, let's talk about some of the trends we're seeing um, as leading indicators of what's to come. Uh, Some some things I saw, for example, is what about the tech giants? Um, We know that Ant Financial in China have been playing in in the wealth space for some time. Um, Tencent uh, were recently in the news about getting a license to sell mutual funds. Are tech giants realistic? playing in the wealth space and the uh, asset management space? Well, I think it's experimental where it's happening with Tencent in Asia, okay? So imagine this as on Facebook Messenger, which they just opened up to now you can send payments via Facebook Messenger, right? That you can connect with a wealth manager and buy shares of funds through Facebook Messenger. That's kind of what Tencent are doing through WePay. That is a great proposition, but when we sent this news story to a large asset manager client, their response back was, well, I wonder how these funds really perform, which is one. And two, I wonder how they're doing this from a regulatory perspective. In the part of the world that they're doing it, they don't have to worry about it too much from a regulatory perspective. So I pose the question back, well, what if an Amazon or a Facebook were to do this? They would have to embrace something like MIFID II. Would they do that right off the bat at the grassroots level? No, they wouldn't. Would they, though? Or would some intermediary have to do it? Because if I'm any other organization, if I'm selling you taxis through Twitter or through email, or you don't regulate the the distribution technology, you regulate the entity that's packaging it and selling it to you. So I think there's a question about you know where that regulation maybe sits and and can people use these platforms to at least engage with customers more on the wealth side? I think is an interesting question. Yeah, and, I, and my my response was that well, listen. I- I don't see a, a, a big tech giant on this side of the world going to do that straight out. Might they buy somebody who's already doing it? Yeah, I've seen startups that are acting like a regulated entity from day one. Um, and they have MIFID authorization on different things to be able to do that. So. A, a big tech giant could step in and buy it and then provide the customer base that they have, perhaps not the context yet, which is a bit of a different story. So is the context of this, Chris, more about actually the changing nature of the interaction between a wealth manager and or, or anybody distributing funds, really, and the platforms that are being used and the experience that's being used? I think you'll find that it... You're having to blend the the solution that's provided to the end client. You're having to add in the regulatory requirements because the sensitivities of any large developed nation around fiscal wealth of all of their of, of their of their um, populace is well, they're massively sensitive. That's that's why there's a huge amount of, of regulation around it. And I think you're seeing that the the nuance between wealth and asset manager is probably one of the smallest differences and the smallest problems of that particular value chain it's how do you manage the pensions deficit how do you manage the the you know as we we're talking about earlier the inheritance and, and the and the crossing across um, generations they're the bigger problems that most governments are looking at 
fundamentally, I mean, it, we also need to think about the education process for users um, and the next generation. We talked about millennials earlier. You know, if you're giving access to buying and selling of funds through, uh, you know, Google or Amazon or any of these kind of distributed social networks, what is the implication on that on the underlying investor? And do they actually know what they're getting? Are, do they have sufficient knowledge and understanding of what they're getting into to be able to actually access it that readily? Yeah, one of the apps that helps you do that, Rubicoin, they, it comes packaged with an Invest app. So you get two downloaded at once. And that Invest is an educational app that teaches you at the grassroots level about investing, right? And that is exactly your points in it. And so the, as we kind of look at this, the the ones, I guess, that uh, everybody's been talking about has been playing in the millennial space has been the robo-advisors, as, as they're often called. Um, how far can that business model creep into fully-fledged asset management? Because it's really been sort of just like an alternative brand for distribution. Does it does it creep? Should it creep? Or, or you know, what, what happens next there? I, I can't talk for, for all robo-advisors, but the, the principle for which they enter the market may well include better interaction with customers. A, a, an improve, you know, Many of them have got an improved UI, sliders, a better understanding and talking about the outcomes that clients want. The, the problem that they've settled into has been they've established themselves another link in that chain that we talked about earlier. I don't see them having drastically reduced costs or even starting to offer new types of solutions or products. They're packaging things up slightly differently, but they're still doing so with potentially, and, and dare I say it, the same old type of funds, yeah. most of them through ETFs and yeah. the like. Yeah, they, they are through ETFs, so it's, a, it's passive. But when you do a passive allocation, there is some active that's involved in making that decision, right? It's not just going to be, I'm going to buy one passive fund. It's that I'm going to allocate across three or four. What the robo-advisors are doing is taking your personal information and suggesting what you should invest in and what that allocation should be. So that is somewhat active in nature. Yeah, I, I think I think there's step one on that process. They're trying to engage customers, yeah. which is a good thing. They're trying to package up products into solutions, if that makes sense, increasingly. I think there are 10 steps to go. So, so you know, so in terms of should they increasingly inc uh, improve what an asset management offers? Yes. Will it come from the traditional robo advisors? Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, what I'd like to see happen with the robo advisors is move more towards robo management, which is instead of suggesting an allocation of ETFs, that you actually suggest an allocation of direct equities, right? Or a mixture of investing in equities and bonds. Right, which is a, more of an active investment approach, but that's going to take some algorithms. That's going to take a lot more doing, and and some issues and discussions from a regulatory point of view, as well as the type of assets. And, and Zainet will know from a. There are many instances for which an investment for alternatives makes sense to retail investors because it's hedging some of their risk, but actually they're precluded from doing so from a regulatory point of view. Currently, that's one of the ironies of the market. And just maybe to talk to the sort of more the asset management side of things, um, uh, you know, leaving wealth aside for the minute, I think one of the interesting developments that we've seen, not directly in the robo space, but more direct, more to do with the use of data more broadly and, and actually what AI can do for you is looking at non-traditional sources of data. Uh, and I'm, you know, we may be coming on to talk to that in a minute, but you know, clearly that's one of the trends that we are seeing with with our clients in the market, 
uh, looking at things like satellite imagery, looking at things like traffic flow information to feed into the research process, the hypothesis generation process that in the investment. That your then uses to build Correct. an investment Absolutely. portfolio. That's right. I, and so you talked about satellite images and non-traditional sources of data. So what, what does a satellite image give an AI um, that's new and what sort of decision might I, might be, might I be able to make on the back of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a great example, isn't there, um, with regards to a firm that, and forgive me, I forget the name off the top of my head, but looking at, um, uh, you know, the car manufacturing over a period of time, uh, that manufacturing firm about to release its results ahead of time, the satellite image company uh, announces that actually they're probably going to miss their targets for Q4 when the public information is released, they miss their targets for Q4. And, and that information is already available and able to be fed into the algorithms and the decision-making that's gone into the asset manager's research and investment process. So we're not front. talking about a person looking at a lot of pictures on a satellite no. every single day. You've got an algorithm looking at that picture, and that works equally for a retail um, equity, for instance, the, the shares in a retail firm. If the car parks at the retailer are empty on a regular basis across a country, then probably they may miss or, or, or so on. Yeah, and they look at the angle of tilt on an oil well cap in Nebraska, right? And you can decipher that through algorithms looking at photos taken from satellites and so this ability to take visual data and infer meaning from it i think is is a really powerful thing that then in your front office helps you but can it help you in middle and back as well anything that gives you advance notice of increased activity is going to help you so the big the biggest problem and the biggest beef that middle and back office will have will be that the front office hasn't told them about an increase in demand or a new set of securities or a new type of derivative down the pipe that that's that's the you know the the that distinction between those two parts of the business if they don't see it coming it can cause problems interesting yeah where a high frequency trader would all automatically ramp up based upon some market sentiment from a thousand trades a day to forty thousand trades interesting. a day so is there a regtech link here regtech's been kind of hot coming from the regulators for a little while Definitely. I, th- I think reg-, reg tech is, in the broadest sense, as, as the term describes, it's going to be any technology that's going to help you manage regulatory or compliance issues. And since most regulatory and compliance issues, if not all, are very clearly mandated and stipulated almost as a smart contract, dare I say it, you get to the level for which you can start to monitor those on an increasingly real-time basis. And how is that different from how regulation is monitored and managed today? Just set me a contrast. There'll be many regulations which might be done on a post, so-called post-trade basis when, for example, that whole settlement process has happened and everyone so knows. I bought my asset, the investor's been allocated yes. to it, the whole... we uh, know the value, to- we know who owns it. We know, you know, it's almost like if you buy anything on Amazon, you know, have have the goods exchanged hands, has the invoice been paid, have you rated the buyer or seller fantastically well? Um, you know, on that basis, it's a clean transaction and I can put it in the books. And then after that, I can set about going back to it 30 to 60 to 90 days later and figuring out what actually happened and then telling the regulators. Most regulations would be asking about an asset manager's exposure on behalf of their clients to a defined set of instruments. It might be derivatives, it might be US held entities or assets. It might it's about 
valuation and ownership. But with Mifid 2 and the fee transparency needs and the research transparency needs and, and everything that's implied within that, uh, c- does this have to be a spreadsheet and kind of uh, chasing around to try and find the facts or can RegTech help as well? Yeah, I mean, RegTech is a utility that can sit on top of a trading system to pull all of that out. Right, and where you can clearly segregate between the cost of research, the cost of the execution, um, and there are things that have been built to help managers do that now with Mifid two. Interesting, uh, Zeneb, are you seeing anything like that, or, or anything um, in regtech generally? That I, I'd say it's broader than regtech. I mean, uh, dare I say fintech? Um, so, if we think about some of the fintechs we're seeing in the market and and how they're helping our clients, so Cloud Margin is an example of um, a cash management collateral management solution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- these guys can effectively come in and, and sit on top of legacy systems, perhaps that, uh, you know, have been unwieldy and, and maybe not as responsive and not e- not as fast in terms of being able to extract and utilize the data out of them to make some decisions off the back of it. So, uh, you know, clearly they are playing an increasingly interesting and potentially disruptive role in the market. So I'd say it's more than just regtech. I think yeah. I think fintech there's generally a, there's is... There's a fintech sort of new vendor landscape for asset managers to consider as they have these regulation... And Absolutely. Processes. And if you, th- you know, if you think about the investment potentially that technology in the past is, you know, millions of dollars to, to buy, to license, to maintain, to implement, uh, and potentially, you know, that that is difficult and unwieldy going forward. So are there ways that they can get over some of those data hurdles, some of that technology hurdles, some of that effort required by bringing in fintech or other solutions in the market? And I think it's almost to the model of the whole investment universe, isn't it? Traditionally, you've got compliance and and regulatory systems that have been monitoring the inflow of information. So A sends information to B that sends it to C to D to E. You're increasingly saying, well, if you're E in in that chain... I can have access to the data from A directly. So why don't I try and get that as soon as possible to help me analyse my real-time or near-real-time position to or exposure to such a, a regulation? I find it interesting that um, the assumption is that you have to spend millions. I think you were paraphrasing, you weren't suggesting, and, and you were saying that you don't have to spend millions, which I think um, it, it speaks to that being an assumption in the market, that to get anything done in middle and back office, oh, it must be a big program of work and I must spend millions. These new vendors with a new approach are actually challenging some of those assumptions. When a new regulation comes along, do I need a two, three hundred person program to to get my head around it? They do have the benefit of so-called greenfield site where you can define the new business model from scratch. The hardest projects are always, as, as you know, many of the phrases go about changing the wings on an aeroplane as you're travelling along. Well, if you haven't actually got an aeroplane to start with, then changing wings is easy. It's, so our CEO at 11FS... David uh, often uses the metaphor of sedimentary rock uh, over millennia, the the different layers of rock build up and build up and build up and actually tunneling through all of that uh, can be very hard and eventually it becomes like a Swiss cheese and you risk bringing the whole mountain down unless you've really, really know what you're doing and um are there opportunities i guess with what's happening in the the blockchain and the dlt space uh to start to rethink some of the incumbent infrastructure and because my assumption is and please correct me is that we've we've digitized asset management we took a piece of paper we turned then it became a fax machine then it became an email and then there's a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of the things that had happened for for decades if not centuries have been somewhat digitized but have we done 
truly digital end-to-end processes? Have we built digital finance? And does, does DLT or blockchain allow for that? Yeah, it's interesting because we, if, if you're looking at crypto funds, and we release a blog post on that, that crypto funds basically are investing in digital assets, but the rest of the process is fully analog. There is no end-to-end fully digital process that you could look at that would look and smell like a digital bank in N26, a Monzo, a Starling, so on and so forth in, in asset management and wealth management. So when, when you try to back up and say, well, what could this look like in the future? If you do build that true end-to-end digital solution around this and around just crypto funds, fine, great to start. Um, when you can or alts generally or alts generally or and then you can put other asset classes onto this framework private equity you can put onto the framework you could then get into equities bonds listed instruments and operate on this framework um, and where all this big huge machinery that's in this post trade world just becomes a DLT infrastructure with lots of u- little utilities that sit around the side of it that just dip into this so this is going away from as you were saying you, uh, Chris we have this linear one person passes yes. to the next actor passes to the next one it's to been the very next siloed one. and and everybody's doing the same sort of thing in repetition and then sending each other a message saying hey have you done your thing i've done my thing if you done your thing do our things match it's a reconciliation party yeah it's a, it's a reconciliation yeah. ain't no party like a reconciliation party <laughs> you heard it here first folks but but i guess if if dlt uh, alleviates at least some of that then then it's worth more investigation and serious investigation i, th- I think I- i've purposely dropped in you know the terms about ownership and value that that is fundamentally what a, what an asset management process is mm-hmm. from end to end that is often what what most of the blockchain solutions have been built to deliver there's a clear application that says we'll manage those increasingly any type of assets in a digital format and manage that process across the counterparties and stakeholders in the market. So is this already happening, Pete? Because we saw um, an article um, in, from December where Vanguard uh, are working with Symbiont, who are one of the new vendors in this space, for some of their index fund data. And we were talking about middle and uh, back office really dealing with data. This is kind of going right to the core of, of one of the key issues in that space. It, it does. And y- you can imagine what they're doing in that they've created an index and all the components of the index are individual equities. And each one of these set up as a smart contract. Nest all of that into a index itself. Um, that is a smart contract gets nested into an ETF that's a smart contract. And what happens is that you build all the messaging out of that, out to the market to execute all your trades, right? Wonderful, slam dunk, sounds great. Um, right now, it's Vanguard interacting with CRSP on this. Um, we'd like to see a number of others perhaps subscribe into the same process, and then you start to un- un- unveil the true power of it all. Yeah, we've, uh, as EY, we've developed uh, last summer a private blockchain with your old shop, Pete, BNP Paribas, um, uh, focused on the cash management operational efficiencies. Um, that was piloted successfully. So, you know, we are very much of the view that this is a real area of interest and focus, and we are working with our clients and helping them to realise some of the opportunities that this presents. I think there are still some questions in the market around scalability yeah. um, and, and sort of volume capacity around some of these blockchain developments, but 
you know, clearly we are we are a few years away, and if technology continues to develop at the pace it is, I think we'll we'll get there sooner rather than later. Well, this is why I like Pete's idea about um, do you start with something that's natively digital and, and already you have nothing in because if if you're dealing internally with sedimentary rock, if you're dealing with something that's very hard to change, well, why not start with something that you're not doing at all? That's something that's truly alternative to your existing business model and and build that in an end-to-end digital fashion as if you were designing your own future. There's a great um, story, and I forget who originated it, um, so apologies, and somebody will correct me, I'm sure, um, that the reason Elon Musk is able to uh, fly a a rocket into space and land it for $15 million versus NASA spend billions trying to just send it in one direction is because NASA's shuttle was based on the uh, Saturn V rocket, and the Saturn V rocket was based on the old V2 from Nazi Germany. And the V2 was limited by how much you could fit onto a train in terms of its materials and the width of uh, a train carriage is limited by two horses asses which go back to roman times so the sedimentary rock inside an organization can often create decisions that aren't the best outcomes I thought blockchains were determined by the size of two horses' asses as well but uh, well Pete and I would resemble that <laughs> remark <laughs> I think look, I think that's a great ideal to aim toward I think the reality is though you know that we have to we have to work with what we've got mm-hmm. and we have to and you, you can't know throw it away. and you can't throw it away and you you can't you know Chris sort of mentioned a blank sheet of paper if only we could do that but we can't so we have to recognize the reality and the pragmatic nature of the industry that we're in I think you can do it with a blank sheet of paper um I like I I have seen startups do this and things that I never would have imagined that could be built on a shoestring budget are being built with wonderful hedging going on between different portfolio currencies and so on and so forth. It's fantastic. This is the this is the myth of transformation. Um, that's a blog post title that we've got to do. The myth of transformation. The myth that I have to take what's there and transform it into the new thing. The caterpillar must become the butterfly. That very rarely happens. Um, the, in fact, that's probably the only example in nature. Usually, the new thing eats the old thing. And uh, that's a but that's an intergenerational change. It's not something that changes overnight. So you can't stop doing the efficiency plays. You absolutely have to keep doing them. You have to have the funds DLT and the Callistones and the uh, and the AI stuff mm-hmm. and and uh, cloud margin working within the existing infrastructure. But do you buy an option on a different architecture? Should, should I tell you something that I think the asset management industry could learn from the insurance industry? The insurance industry has been very good at partitioning, its, partitioning parts of its business and then letting that old model gradually die out yeah asset managers too often have tried to take their whole business and effectively you know change the wings of the plane they've tried to move it onto new technology all at the same time so the compromise between both Zainab and, and, and Pete is you build the new on the blank sheet of paper and you gradually shovel over the sedimentary rock a little piece at a time, yep. 10% here, 10% here. And frankly, you may still leave 50% of that business exactly as it is, and you, and you take the new sets of the business. Yep. Uh, it, might be, it might be geographically split. It might be client-based. Any and all and I completely split. agree. I completely agree. Yep. And now you're talking the Innovator's Dilemma, Clayton Christensen 101. And I think that's the perfect place to leave this episode. So that wraps up our Asset Management Special Edition of Fintech Insider uh, Part 2. Chris, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Our website, fimatics.com, F-I-M-A-T-I-X.com. You've got yourself your own .com right now. I, I love that. Pete, what about you? You can get me on Twitter at Pete Townsend NV. NV. And uh, Zenib, how about you? 
You can find me on LinkedIn and obviously www.ey.com. Excellent. I, I believe people may have heard of you guys. You guys are doing a lot of great work in DLT for sure. Thank you, audience, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this show. And as always, we'd love your feedback. Please, please leave us a review on iTunes. They help us out so much. Or you can reach out at hello at 11fs.com if you'd like to talk to us or anyone you've heard on today's show. Um, we'll have more specials in the Investment Market series coming soon. Don't forget, episode 167 was our first in the series, the Wealth Special. And coming up soon, episode 171 will be the third in the series. Uh, until next time, goodbye. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite Size goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.